Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Midtown Atlanta, it's time for Top Docs Radio, brought to you by Medical Association of Georgia. With over 7,800 physician members, MAG is pleased to advocate on behalf of Georgia's patients and physicians. Visit mag.org and on Twitter at mag1849. Join the conversation on Twitter at Top Docs on BRX. Good afternoon, everyone. It is CW. Thank you for joining us on the Top Docs radio show. It's the fourth Tuesday of the month, so we have the Medical Association of Georgia folks in the studio with us. And we'll be talking about a couple of topics that are certainly on the mind uh, for a number of different reasons, uh, one of which dealing with uh, um, opiate abuse and how we are taking action to try and reduce its occurrence, uh, look at great alternatives for physicians when it comes to prescribing and, and uh things that we're doing from an educational perspective that would help reduce the rate of occurrence of, of opiate uh, issues. You know, a significant number of people in our, in our population around the country are dealing with this, and it's taking the lives of many, many on an annual basis. So we'll be getting into that. And then, of course, we'll be taking a look at the uh, changes around Medicare, Medicare reimbursement and MACRA and, and get some uh, insight into that and how it's going to affect our practice. We have a great expert with us in the studio today, Dr. Patrice Harris. She is a practicing psychiatrist from here in the Atlanta area, but she is also the chair of the American Medical Association's Board of Trustees, and she's the chair of the AMA Task Force to Reduce Opioid Abuse, so certainly going to be able to share some great expertise on that subject. She's been a president of the Georgia Psychiatric Physicians Association, and she has served on the Medical Association of Georgia's Council on Legislation. Thanks for taking some time, Dr. Harris. Oh, well, thanks for having me. <laughs> so some some very important topics, obviously, and, and some that I'm certainly pleased to be sharing information with our community, both patients out there, family members, as well as providers that uh, stop by and check out our show, particularly the Medical Association of Georgia membership that they send our information out to. So we'll be talking to a lot of folks out there with this information today. Uh, before we get really deep into those issues, talk about yourself. How did you get into medicine? Why medicine? And then, of course, from there, why psychiatry? Well, I've wanted to be a physician since I was eight years old, and my inspiration was Marcus Welby. If you recall, or as I recall, Marcus or Dr. Marcus Welby was very respected in the community. He was an excellent physician, uh, but he also looked beyond the medical issues, and he he helped his patients out uh, with the other factors in their lives that were contributing uh, to their, their issues. Now, we know that that was a TV show, but I was certainly inspired to be a physician uh, uh, by Marcus Welby. And then talk about how, once you got into medical school, it's a challenging field, I think, for a number of different reasons. What made you think, wow, psychiatry, this is for me? Well, I, I went to medical school planning to be a pediatrician. I always loved working uh, with children, and I thought there was great opportunity in working with children. Um, but for those in the listen, listening audience who don't know, in third-year medical school, uh, we are exposed to all of the specialties. And when I got to my psychiatry rotation, I absolutely loved it. Now, I have to say, in first-year anatomy, I was fascinated by the brain. This 
blob of tissue that was such a complex organization. And really in the brain lies everything Mm -hmm. uh, that goes on in the rest of the body. So I believe my fascination with the brain and then my, my fascination and what I saw was challenge in working um, with the patients who had mental disorders. It was just a great fit for me. And then ultimately, I did a fellowship in child psychiatry. And so that got me back to my uh, my passion for children. Yeah. So then you're 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 kind of made a full circle there and just uh, just a mildly different perspective on it. So with your practice, because as I mentioned, you are a practicing psychiatrist, you're also heavily involved uh, on the advocacy and just, uh, you know, in in terms of the association representing the, the uh, physicians around the country, what got you involved in AMA? What made you want to spend even more of your time supporting advocacy and those types of issues? Well, I learned early on the power of organized medicine. I went down to the Georgia General Assembly one day for Psychiatrist Day at the Capitol and had the opportunity to talk to my legislators, but I also had the opportunity to see uh, medicine in action. And the Medical Association of Georgia was there, and the Georgia Psychiatric Physician uh, Association was there, and all of the other specialties were there. And I saw that it was critical that we were there. It was critical um, that physicians were talking to our legislators about the issues that affect our profession and our patients. And it was critical that we did that together. And so that spurred my interest in organized medicine and really uh, continued to spur my interest. And I'm, I'm so happy now. The American Medical Association is a big tent organization. We are the umbrella organization for the physicians of this country. And so uh, what an honor yeah. and privilege for me to be here and really amplify the work of our profession. Now, you you talked about the fact before we went on the air that you're, you're um, an individual that you just were one of those that was inspired to be involved in that sort of a leadership and, and, and community type involvement on a higher level, contributing time. You were in student council, for example, and and uh, probably similarly involved in college efforts as well. And, and so, when we talk to our colleagues around the the medical community, why why take that extra time? It's like you're I'm sure you're quite busy with your practice and so forth. why why contribute some mental time or even physical time to being involved in you know efforts like what what you're talking about? Well, certainly, as I recall, Marcus Welby did not have to deal with all of the uh, regulatory burden and all of the <laughs> it's other a little things, different now, or at least it? it didn't appear that way on 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 TV. Uh, but today, physicians practice in a very complex world with multiple regulations coming at us from from different points. And so it is critical that physicians, in my opinion, consider advocacy as much a part of their professional lives as they do their continuing education. Now, each physician should come to their level of involvement uh, in a in a way that meets the needs of their their practice and their their family, uh, but certainly everyone needs to be involved and support those who are more involved like me. Again, I'm not saying that every uh, physician has to be as involved, but every physician must have some level of involvement, in my opinion. 
at least understanding some of the issues that are being put forth and, and, and weighing in with an opinion, if nothing else. You talked about going to the Capitol and, and speaking with legislators. I haven't done that in the past, but I have gone to the effort of actually contacting my representation uh, on a couple of issues over time. And I, I was impressed by the level of interest that they had in what I had to say. And I'm sure it was somewhat your experience as well when you were at the at the Capitol as well that your perspective and your opinion are are valuable and they're trying to make choices around how do we deliver healthcare? What do we, you know, the direction that we're going to take because it affects both patients and you. That has been my experience as well. Legislators are very interested in uh, learning what physicians have to say, what patients have to say, as they have to make decisions around policy uh, that affects the practice of medicine and our healthcare delivery. And I have always found legislators here in Georgia, legislators in Congress, uh, the administration, very receptive and open uh, to listening to our ideas. Now, you chair the AMA's task force to reduce opioid abuse, and we should talk about that a little bit. I, I You know, the, the, the statistics behind opiate abuse are, are impressive. Forty people a day dying due to uh, problems around uh, it, you, typically overconsumption of, of opioids. You know, more and more people, I mean, for a long time it was, and even today, I'm still surprised by the number of pills that you can get prescribed that you didn't even necessarily ask for, let's say when you have a surgery, for example, my family members have, have experienced that. And of course, the AMA created this task force to reduce opioid ab- abuse, and you're chairing that, that task force. Talk about why did they form it um, and, and what we're trying to achieve here. Well, clearly, um, actually, and the number has increased from your 40 a day. Uh, the, now we know that approximately 78 uh, folks a day die uh, from an opioid uh, overdose. And so this is clearly a public health epidemic and one that physicians um, have been concerned about for many years. But about 18 months ago, the American Medical Association Board of Trustees decided to convene a task force of around 26 specialty and state societies and the American Dental Association Mm. to address this issue. We wanted to amplify efforts that were already out there, but we also wanted to make sure we were collaborating and coordinating our efforts uh, to address this issue. And so from the work of that task force, we've come up with five uh, recommendations that we think uh, will go a long way uh, to certainly reverse this trend and hopefully hopefully to end this epidemic. I'm sure some of that is around how do we prescribe, but can you talk about some of those recommendations? Absolutely. So the first two recommendations are certainly physician-focused. We encourage all physicians to register for and use their state PDMP. And most people uh, might ask, what is a PDMP? It's a registry. It's a state-based registry for uh, patients and who are being prescribed certain medications. These, this information is entered into the registry, typically by pharmacists, mm-hmm. and then physicians can check that registry when they are prescribing. Um, the goal there is to use that as a tool 
in the physician's toolbox. It's information. Physicians are always uh, interested in information to help them make uh, clinical uh, decisions. And so we believe that, uh, again, is an important tool in the toolbox. So I can know, for example, if patient A has seen uh, several uh physicians and has prescriptions, has open prescriptions uh, for several medications. I can also see perhaps if they are not taking those medications and, and talk to the patient about that. So it's certainly a tool in the toolbox. Now, at the same time that we encourage physicians to register for and use their state PDMPs, we are well aware at the AMA, and physicians across the country are well aware of this, that not all of the PDMPs are created equal. Mm-hmm. Some, some states are further along than others in making sure that the PDMPs are fully funded so that they are effective tools. We need the information to be real-time, accurate, and up-to-date. And so we know that's a journey. Again, some states' uh, PDMPs are further along than others. We certainly believe um, these PDMPs should be under the purview of the public health professionals in each state. But again, as we continue to work to improve the PDMPs in each state, we think a physician should use them. Now, is the PDMP the same as what I experience when I go to get my allergy medication that has uh, uh, Sudafed in it and they, they take my driver's license and it records and if I or if I try to purchase too much in a period of time, it actually says, oh, we can't sell this to you. Is that a yes, similar the, system? The concept is the same, okay. but it's less about the purchase and the sale yeah. uh, than about making sure that information is in the system okay. so that physicians and pharmacists have access to that information and then use that information. Now, is the PDMP access for the physician who's going to be using that in their decision making? Is it access through the EMR or is it a different, like an online portal that they go through their browser or an app on their phone or something? Well, that varies from state to state, but typically, and that is a barrier, and so I'm glad you brought that up, uh, an additional barrier is that oftentimes the PDMPs are not integrated into electronic health records, and it makes it very cumbersome. But I do know that, um, you know, we encourage that, and there are efforts afoot um, at many of the states uh, to do that. Is it possible for my office to have someone in addition to maybe the physician that's able to access the uh, the information. So do I, if, if I'm the prescribing physician, does it have to be me that views it? Or can my RN, for example, access that database to be able to review and make sure we're good to go and call attention to the physician if they see something? It depends on the state. Okay. Uh, but the AMA certainly encourages uh, states to ensure that physicians can delegate uh, that authority. That makes so much more sense. It certainly would mitigate the disruption in, in workflow right. if someone can be delegated uh, to get that information. Now, I have to say it, it's critical. And so, and we don't, um, uh, we don't recommend and that lightly we understand that we have to have uh, patient confidentiality and privacy issues, but we do think having uh, the ability to delegate that to folks in the office makes sense. Probably would imp- increase engagement at rates and implementation rates of, of various practices because I just don't have time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we drilled down on the PDMP is what, what other focuses are we putting out there? So quickly, I'll go over the the, uh, the rest of the, uh, the four, and then we can d- decide uh, how much we want to chat about. But the second one is to make sure that physicians are enhancing their tra- uh, training and education regarding opioid use and regarding substance use 
disorders. Um, We certainly believe in education. We want to make sure, though, that the education uh, that a physician receives and obtains makes sense for their patient population, their practice, and their specialty. We certainly caution against one-size-fits-all approaches to this. Physicians want to be educated. A recent survey showed that 87% of physicians in that survey want increased training, but clearly they want it to be relevant to their their practice and their specialty. Uh, The next recommendation actually is a broader. It's more than just physicians, and it's about reducing, reducing the stigma of substance use disorders and the stigma for those in pain. We have to increase access to treatment for those with substance use disorder. Actually, as a psychiatrist, I have to say we need to make sure that there is increased access uh, to treatment uh, for all mental disorders. But regarding this issue, we want to make sure that there is increased access to treatment, particularly the medication-assistant treatment. I don't know if you are familiar with the buprenorphine Mm -hmm. and that, which is definitely an evidence-based treatment. Again, it won't work for everyone, but the evidence shows that it does work uh, for some who are uh, have substance use disorders. Who are so would that be a medication disorders. that would keep me from having withdrawal-type symptoms yes. but not give me the disruption, the, and the hallucinogenic? Yes. A- absolutely. Okay. And uh, it's called medication-assisted treatment. Uh, buprenorphine is one medication, but we do emphatically state um, that there should be enhanced access uh, to that. Talked a little bit about the stigma. We also want to make sure that naloxone is available. Mm -hmm. Naloxone uh, is the drug that can reverse an opioid overdose. And uh, we've had good success here. Many states have made sure that their first responders have access to naloxone. But we are also encouraging physicians to consider co-prescribing naloxone to the patients that they think are at high risk of overdose. Hmm. How, how, do, how do they identify somebody that they think might possibly be at risk? Either is it they've had some history of, of abuse in the past. What would make them think, well, we've, we, we need to give them pain medicine, but we also know that there's a possibility here? And that you hit the nail on the head. That is one uh, criteria. But but here I want to stress the importance of having a conversation mm-hmm. actually between the physician and the patient. I mean, that's where the rubber meets the road. And if there is honest conversation between the physician and the patient about prior substance uh, use, uh, any prior substance use disorder history, um, any issues with taking more medication than prescribed. Those are all of the questions uh, and many of the areas of discussion that a patient and a physician could have to uh, decide if they are at higher risk for overdose. Clearly taking prescribing pain medications much more seriously and being a lot more engaged in the patient throughout the process to make them understand this is an this is a this is a serious medication that we're talking about. It's not just if your if your surgical site is hurting, take some pain medicine. It's actually got some serious risks, and so it sounds like there's some focus being placed on trying to make sure our prescribers are talking about that to some extent. 
Absolutely. And I think uh, there's a focus on both the uh, the physician and the prescriber side, as well as the patient side. I know the Medical Association of Georgia has done some work with the Think About It right. campaign uh, to, to educate uh, uh, patients about that. And I know the Pennsylvania Medical uh, Society is doing some work on um, raising issues of awareness and really, I think, stimulating the kinds of discussion and conversation that patients should be having um, with their physicians. I do want to emphasize one thing as we talk about pain and as we talk about opioids. We all know that opioids and pills, medications are not the only evidence-based treatment for pain. Unfortunately, there's not always great access to the non-opioid alternatives. Mm. And when there is access, there may be limits. And so, you know, as many have said, and as I have said in a meeting with the National Governors Association, this is clearly an all-in proposal. It's certainly going to take physicians, and we have certainly taken the lead on the roles that we play and what we can do. But we need the policymakers. I know the administration, current administration, has put a marker down on this issue. We also need those who pay for treatment uh, to also be all in on this. And we want to make sure that um, folks have access to physical therapy. They have access to acupuncture. There's evidence that cognitive behavioral therapy can help with pain. So it's critical that uh, patients have access to non-opioid alternatives. Now, you mentioned the National Governors Association. I know that the AMA is collaborating with the National Governors Association to uh, try to fight the opioid problem. How is how is that? How'd that collaboration come about? What are they trying to do? Well, certainly it was an opportunity for us to work again with the stakeholders. Governors are clearly interested in this. Um, this issue affects uh, all regions of this country, but clearly some states have been hit harder than others. So the governors are very interested in this. And we came together with some principles that really uh, mirror and uh, really uh uh, have a lot of synergy uh, with the recommendations that that I just mentioned. You know, everyone wants uh, to address this issue, and it's important that we continue the dialogue to make sure that we are addressing this issue. But on the other hand, we also want to make sure that we mitigate any unintended consequences. There are folks in this country who are dealing with chronic pain, and we want to make sure that they continue to have access to what they need to address their pain. Because it can be a significant disruptor in their quality of life, no question about it. I can't imagine being one of those folks that have a severe back injury, for example, such that you feel significant pain pretty much all the time. So, you know, it would really erode your ability just to enjoy your day as a, as a human here when you're dealing with that. So surely there's, there's, as you mentioned, there's going to be a groups of people that we have to find some sort of alternative for, or at least a cautious approach so that we keep them out of danger of the addiction side of things. You know, it's all about balance and, and the evidence. And so we want to make sure that there's balance out there and that as we address this epidemic, which we must do, and the AMA and our immediate past president uh, sent out a call to action um, encouraging physicians to uh, make sure that when they prescribe opiates and opiates are uh, appropriately used, um, they should be used um, with the lowest effective dose, uh, the shortest duration of time. We've been talking with the chairman of the American Association 
American Medical Association Board of Trustees, as well as the chair of the task force to uh, combat opioid abuse, Dr. Patrice Harris, with us in the studio here on the Medical Association of Georgia episode of, of this week. And you mentioned the Think About It campaign. It sounds like uh, having had the, the folks from the Medical Association of Georgia's foundation in the studio, some of the things that they're educating physicians and patients about are in line with what you were talking about from the AMA's recommendations. Things they were also talking about were aimed at how to store and handle, dispose of medications that are left around. It sounds like they're really in line with the the way the AMA is approaching it. That is a critical piece. And, and, and there is great synergy um, out there regarding these uh, uh, medications, but that is a critical piece, the proper disposal and storage of these medications, because we know that a significant number of folks get the medication from a family member's medicine cabinet. And so we, we want to make sure that uh, folks are aware that these medications should be uh, properly stored and properly disposed of. And I also at this point want to highlight the uh, AMA Alliance uh, because they are also working on this energy. And as you said, there's so much synergy uh, surrounding what we need to do. Being able to help the legislators who are trying to craft laws that will influence the, the, the pace of this problem growing and maybe even indeed turn it around and, and be able to see a decrease in the number of people that are dealing with this issue. Uh, but just in my own experience over the last few months, being able to see more and more people talking about it and, and initiatives like Think About It and the task force from the AMA, I would imagine that over time, as particularly as prescribers really begin to take it that much more seriously um, and, and focus on how they communicate around these prescriptions with patients, it seems like that some positive things will come from this. Well, you know, and we I also want to note that uh, we know that the number of prescriptions have decreased over the last two years. Now, I think that's a critical data point. I say it's a necessary data point, but it's not the only data point we should be looking at. And so as uh, we decrease uh, the number of opioids prescribed, we want to make sure, again, um, that we uh, make sure we're mitigating any unintended consequences. And we also want to look at the strategies that work. And the AMA believes that, again, um, when PDMPs are an effective tool, they will go a long way. Um, certainly physicians are interested in their training. We have to make sure, again, the uh, treatment access is is there. When you have diabetes, no one says, well, your blood sugar is high, but uh, there's no bed available, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know. But yes. when folks come in with an overdose, they often have a substance use disorder and often they are told to call around and see if you can find uh, a place because there are no beds available and you might uh, be able to get in in six weeks. And that, again, Ugh. gets back to my my recommendation earlier about the critical need for increasing access yeah, to Yeah, disaster treatment. waiting to happen in that situation. I know the C CDC weighed in with some recommendations. How does AMA and your efforts with the task force and as, as well as MAG's foundation efforts around Think About It, how do, how do you fall on, on where the CDC is going with it? Well, we certainly applaud the CDC uh, for their work uh, on this issue. As you may be aware, the CDC came out with 12 recommendations, uh, and these are guidelines. And, uh, you know, the AMA, there was synergy with 10 of the 12 
of those recommendations. And where we had concerns, we raised those issues to CDC, but we um, continue to uh, work with the CDC. I just had a meeting with the uh, with some members of the CDC about this. And so we share the same goal. And what we need to do is make sure we're moving forward uh, to address this epidemic. You know, like I say, I'm, I'm, I'm very pleased to be able to sit and talk with folks like yourself and uh, the MAG Foundation people to help share information both with the physician population around our community as well as patients that check out the show just because uh, the more we know and and, and just I, I think thinking about things like we're talking about how to store and dispose medications. What if I don't use all of my, my pain med? What do I do with it? I mean, how many people keep it hanging around the house and either share it with each other or it's just there to be uh, gotten into by visitors or members in the house. Um, so more education like this along this way, I, I'm, I'm very pleased to be a part of that. And one of the to- topics we talked about not too long ago uh, was dealing with the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services and the Medicare Access and Chip Reauthorization Act of 2015. We love our acronyms. That's <laughs> right. MACRA, it's easier to say for sure though it might be through gritted teeth for some providers out there because it's going to change the way we're reimbursed. It is going to create a bit of a separation, I think, between top performers and those that don't maybe take some of these things quite so seriously. So we might as well take a look at MACRA and what it's going to do around uh, the the physician experience, if you will. So is it going to improve reimbursement? Is it going to help things? What's, what's it going to do for us? Well, and, and I might, uh, you know, take a different take as we, we look at MACRA. And uh, I, I, I might uh, sort of uh, uh, debate uh, with you or have a different take regarding top performers and non-top right. performers. But, but here's the AMA's uh, take on MACRA currently. Um, because MACRA uh, is not yet in effect. The final rule will be yeah, issued we'll know in a few weeks. Uh, later uh, <laughs> this uh, this year. But currently, physicians are reporting under several different systems. We have uh, meaningful use that they have to report, and, and there may be penalties for not reporting. Uh, we have the PQRS, and, you know, all these acronyms, <laughs> yeah. Phys- Physician Quality Reporting System, and we have VBM, Value-Based Modifiers. So that's the context now. It's very confusing. Often the reporting overlaps. The penalties can overlap. So with MACRA, there's an opportunity to really streamline and get rid of those multiple layers and multiple reporting systems into one. And that's the MIPS, another uh, another acronym, <laughs> yep. but uh, you know the the, the MIPS program. So certainly, MACRA is not perfect, uh, but we do believe it is an improvement um, on what physicians are under at this point. And of course, we will continue the AMA, the Medical Association of Georgia. We will continue to work with CMS to improve the pieces of macro that need to be improving. But clearly, again, there are some advantages. It, it eliminates the duplicative measurements out there, as I said earlier. It provides credit for physicians succeeding. Currently, the system is sort of a pass-fail, all or none. And uh, this new system under MACRO will allow partial credit 
if you will. Yeah. Now, you know, there are still some pass fail and we're still working with CMS on that, but that's an improvement. Um, it certainly offers choice and physicians can pick from an array of alternatives regarding the clinical practice improvements right. or another Because they know their practice, acronym. they know what their patient population looks like, etc. Absolutely, absolutely. So so clearly and 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 finally, I know you were familiar with the SGR. And the, the SGR was the previous payment system, and every year there was instability regarding that, and physicians mm-hmm. didn't know if there was going to be a cut, didn't know the level of a cut. That was extreme instability in the system, uh, and so MACRA got rid of SGR and really offers an opportunity to stabilize the system. And to clarify my comment about top performers versus not so much, basically where I was going was as it's defined by by the by the rules and and how you're reporting. So it's I, I think in the end, as much as anything, it probably comes down to who who is very effective at documenting and submitting those types of things uh, and identifying good problem areas, if you will, or focus areas and how they go about addressing those versus the ones that don't necessarily get so robust with regards to what they're putting forth as measurements as well as how they're documenting it and submitting that. Does that make sense? Well, it does. And I and I think that gets to sort of a bigger uh, issue uh, and just a, a topic of conversation that we will need to have from now on. And it's sort of philosophically, we want to make sure that these measures aren't measures for measurement's sake. So are they just check the box? Are they just clicks? I actually don't think that was anyone's intention, although as a psychiatrist, I know that I can't decide what someone's (laughs) intentions are. But but we have to make sure. But I I think at the end of the day, um, originally systems ended up being that way. It's just checking the boxes. And I think that's a concern that physicians had. Physicians don't mind uh, measurements as long as they make sense and they are meaningful and they are measuring whether or not a physician is providing, uh, you know, uh, quality. Physicians define quality very well. And, and it's critical that physicians continue to define quality um, versus, you know, just a checkbox or whether, again, you filled in, you filled in uh, a, sheet, uh, a sheet of paper. So I, I think that's a bigger philosophical question, but, but specifically, and, and I think uh, folks are listening, and I think um, we want to get to that. I think CMS is listening. Andy Slavitt just uh, spoke um, to the House of Delegates at our recent AMA meeting. And clearly, I think the end goal is to make sure we have a system that makes sense and is meaningful and gets us all to, um, you know, improving the quality of the care that we provide. Where does AMA stand on the proposed rule around the way MACRA is going to be implemented? Well, uh, the AMA just submitted a letter of comment uh, to uh, Andy Slavitt yesterday, and the letter was uh, about 50 pages long. Did you get a read receipt? Uh, (laughs) 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 It was a long letter, but but, but a serious note, it's a 900-page letter. you know, list a uh, length of uh, of regulations in the AMA and the Medical Association of Georgia. And I know Donald Palmasano, the CM, uh, uh, CEO, did a very deep dive into those re- regulations to uh, make sure that, uh, number one, uh, any areas that need to be changed are changed, and we raise those raise those concerns, uh, raise those uh, areas of concern. And number two, that physicians are are prepared. And again, some of the things that we ask CMS to do is perhaps delay the start 
as you and I mentioned earlier, the rules are going to come out in late fall. Um, but under the current proposed system, uh, January 1 starts a period yep. where uh, there, there is a need to report. So that is a short window of time to take all that in and prepare your, your practice. And uh, practices may need to invest in different things, and particularly the smaller practices. Some of the larger systems already have a lot of um, these things in place. And so we're asking maybe to have a transitional reporting period. Um, we also um, encourage more simplification. Again, it's better, uh, but it could get even better as you look at some of the rules and some of the reporting uh, requirements. We want to make sure that there's more flexibility for solo uh, physicians and the threshold perhaps could be lower uh, for those uh, physicians who have lower volume, lower number of patients. Um, and we also want to um, make sure that um, there's, a, there's a process to get uh, timely feedback if if I'm going to be reporting measures and perhaps get a bonuses or penal, uh, penalties based on what I'm reporting, I'd like to know sooner rather than later how I'm doing. Yes. And so those are just a few of the areas that we've commented on. And again, Andy Slavitt was at our meeting and uh, CMS is listening. We look forward to continuing to be a partner with the administration, but a partner with uh, all of the state and specialty uh, societies as we get uh, prepared for this uh, this new system. It sounds like many physicians are assuming they're going to be participants in the MIPS programs versus the APMs. In the early going, in particular, where do you where do you stand around that? Do you think that's probably true? I think that's accurate because uh, the MIPS is just one. There's sort of two major arms of this: the MIPS and the APMs. The APM is alternative payment models, and as they stand today, there are a limited number. Yeah, it was very limited on payment the, models yeah, that could meet qualify. the yes yeah. that that meet the criteria. And that's another area we want we would like to see that expanded. Uh, but practically speaking, we know most practices won't be ready um, for that, particularly with a limited number. And so uh, we believe that most physicians will then choose to go the MIPS al- alternative. Where where does my practice go to get more information so that either my administrator, I, I would imagine that the physicians themselves really probably should at least familiarize themselves to the best extent they can with some of this. I mean, I'm, I'm sure not many pe- people have time to sit around and read a 900-page document, but there's got to be some place that I can go and get some either FAQ-type information or uh, some kind of condensed bullets that might help me understand better what we're talking about. This is critical. And um, and I hope that all of the physicians listening um, will take a moment uh, to get some additional information. And I, I think there are a couple of places where physicians can go. So certainly they can come to our website, the AMA website. And if they put uh, MACRA in the search engine, um, they will find uh, several resources to get them ready and to even do an overall assessment of the next steps of what they uh, need to do to get ready. Um, The AMA has our Steps Forward program. Um, There's a learning module in that, and they can learn from that the next steps that their practices should take. But physicians should also contact their state medical association. We're here in Georgia, so here it's the Medical Association of Georgia. I know that they have been working hard and working on some strategies to get uh, the physicians of Georgia ready and also the specialty societies. And, you know, work has been happening 
our CEO, the CEO of the American Medical Association, convened a task force and folks really uh, did a deep dive into this, different specialties in different states. And so I encourage uh, physicians to uh, go to our website and here in Georgia to go to the Medical Association of Georgia website for more information. And also, if you're listening, you can also cruise around on the Top Talks radio show page because over time we've had experts on ICD-10. We've talked about the MIPS program, a number of other reimbursement changes that are affecting the way physicians uh, are reimbursed and and how those will work so you can get somebody actually talking to you if you want to have it spoken to you uh, 30 or 40 minutes uh, most of the time on those episodes so it wouldn't take you a long time a ride to work and you'll have an expert talking to you about these ideas in uh, detail as well but you can certainly cruise as uh, Dr. Harris was talking about by the American Medical Association's website or MAG get some more educational offerings available there. And we certainly encourage everybody to do that because it's very, very important. And as you said, there's a chance that it could actually go into effect and we're actually underway starting in January. So it's uh, certainly worth an effort to get better educated amongst the, the providers as well as administrators for practices. Absolutely. You know, I've always said that physicians, um, of course I'm biased, but uh, you know, physicians work hard every day taking care of our patients every day and, uh, you know, sometimes uh, neglect to uh, make sure that we know the regulatory burdens and the things that are coming from the outside. And so it will be critical that physicians do all they can because I know what the AMA wants to do and I know what MAG wants to do is to ensure that pa- that physicians succeed in this new program. Succeed in the way, though, that they deem appropriate. Every physician, every practice will have to make their own decision. Uh, but the AMA's goal is to make sure that physicians succeed. All physicians have the opportunity to succeed in this new program. Uh, in this new payment world. <laughs> and so, um, you know, people will have to make decisions and, and, and do what's best for their practice. But um, that's what uh, AMA and MAG uh, hopes uh, to do at the end of the day. I have final thoughts before I let you get back to the office. I know you're in the middle of your day. Well, first of all, thank you very much uh, for, for having me today and, and the opportunity to speak on two critical issues, the opioid epidemic, as you mentioned taking so many lives a day, and it's something that we we have to reverse. And then uh, on the uh, delivery side, uh, physicians uh, will need uh, to prepare uh, for the new delivery models uh, so that, again, we can succeed. But at the end of the day, physician success means patient success. Um, so when physicians are able to do well, spend time with their patients, we can deliver the quality care that all are aiming for. Well, I'm really pleased to have an opportunity to sit down with you and talk about these issues and uh, get a chance to be introduced to you in the studio. So thanks for making time to come by. Well, thanks again. Certainly important topics for sure. And if you are checking out the the show and you've not done so already, if you look in the upper left-hand corner of the Top Docs Radio Show page, you'll see the Apple logo there. That'll take you to the iTunes store where the Top Docs Radio Show podcast lives and you can subscribe to us. And that way each week when you the new episode comes out, you can 
have it downloaded straight to your device and it's ready for you to check out when it's convenient for you. So we hope you do that. And we also ask that if you can turn around and share this with your social media networks, because you might just be putting some information in the hands of somebody that you care about that really makes a difference for them, either in their personal life or in their professional one. So we want to say thanks in advance to the folks that will indulge us in sharing this information. And uh, to all the folks over at Medical Association of Georgia, it's been a blast getting to partner with them, getting to know the folks over at Medical Association of Georgia. If you're not a member already, make sure you go by mag.org and get familiar with what they're doing uh, on behalf of patients and physicians around the state of Georgia. And uh, I look forward to maybe having a conversation with you again sometime. There's probably more we got to talk about. So you have to come back. It would be my pleasure. (laughs) Well, everybody out there, I really want to say thanks so much for making us a part of your day today. We look forward to connecting with you same time, same place next week. We'll see you then.